I realize this is only the sixth time and the sixth lesson in this series, but y'all are over five. Look at these kids. They're down on the front row. We got to get, get, get in close. It makes, it will make a difference. So we got to go through our timeline and everything. And, um, so I, I appreciate your prayers for our safety and everything on the road. You know, road trips just, man, that's a long drive, but we did, we had a great, great time and, uh, good relaxing, uh, time. So for announcements, uh, prep school teach, prep school needs teachers and helpers. Now this is one of the most important functions in the church is in order to train these, these young kids. And if you read the kind of stuff that I'm reading, the pressure to conform to any number of ungodly anti-Christian policies and procedures that are coming down the pike in many different ways. We thank God we live in Texas, and there's still a lot of places where uh, there's not a threat. It's more subtle, let me put it that way, not as overt a threat. But I know of one high school in a district near here where um, the parents said, well, my, my daughter identifies as a cat, and so the principal said, let's go get a, you know, let's go get a sandbox and put it in the girl's restroom so that the, the kitty litter so that the girl can be a cat. That's the kind of nonsense that's out there. And we have to train kids to think biblically so that they can handle all this stuff when you as the parent are not around. And as they get older, like six or seven and eight, they're not around you as much. So they, you have to prepare them earlier. So that's why we need teachers. That's why we need helper. This is the most important ministry of a local church is training the next generation. Uh, also, registration for Chafer Seminary's fall term begins August 1st, which is next Tuesday, if I'm not mistaken. Wednesday. And, uh, probably. One day next week. It should be on Tuesday. And, um, yeah. So anyway, um, if you're a member of West Houston Bible Church, you can take up to two courses, tuition-free, and if you register by August the 6th, the registration fee is waived. So you get to just sign up at no charge and take uh, great courses. I have pastor friends that are taking courses, and and they're constantly telling me the quality of the uh, teachers and the quality of the courses, so that's always good to hear. Good to hear. Okay, so you can go to chafer.edu in order to find out about those courses. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. 
Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, giving everyone an opportunity to confess sin if necessary, and then I will uh, open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, what a great privilege it is that we can come before your throne of grace because Jesus Christ died on the cross, opened the way, and that he is now our high priest. And because he is our high priest, he is the one through whom we come into your presence. And he is the one, along with the Holy Spirit, who also intercedes for us. So, Father, we know that even if we do not articulate our prayers just precisely and if we don't know exactly how to pray, that God the Holy Spirit interprets those and communicates them correctly to the Father. So we're thankful that for that, Father, and we're thankful that we can come together to study these things and to have our minds fortified, for we are to take down these fortresses of thought that have been erected against you uh, so that we might come to uh, be to honestly understand your word and apply it in every area of our lives with the, and we are to pray that we might do this without government interference so that we may go about your business and we pray that you will continue to give us those opportunities and restrict the evil that is taking place in this country uh, just right under our very noses. We, it's everywhere. And Father, we need to be prepared mentally for what, what it will be, we will face. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. So we are going to stand up and start off with our, um, timeline. Okay. We're in interlock. This is lesson two, part two. We're looking at the pagan view of origins. I didn't see anybody stand up. I don't know if I need to go back to being a drill instructor or not. Okay, so I'm going to put it up there. So we haven't done this. I know that it's been difficult to get you to remember all of this since I was uh, we I was gone three Tuesdays when I went to Israel and then a couple of other times. So that's partly my fault. So we're going to get this down. All right, ready? We remember we we just go through this. We go through this with the motions. Ready? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, call of Abraham. That takes care of Genesis. Then we have the uh, Exodus, when the Jews come out of Egypt, and then God gives them the law, ten, ten commandments. And then they will go into the conquest, and after they take the land, then after the period of the judges, they will establish a kingdom. The northern kingdom and the southern kingdom will divide, and then both kingdoms will go out into exile. At the end of the Old Testament, God brings one, brings a remnant back, and that's only a partial return. So that's the whole Old Testament. We did that in about 20 seconds. 
Okay? Then we come into the New Testament. That begins with what? The birth of Jesus. And then Jesus is going to die on the cross for our sins, pay the penalty for our sins. He will be buried. On the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And then he will ascend to heaven from whence he sends the Holy Spirit to establish the church. And so we are still in the church age. And the church age ends with the rapture. Jesus comes back in the air. He takes us to heaven. There'll be the seven years of the tribulation, and then Jesus Christ will return to the earth and establish his kingdom. At the end of a thousand years, there will be the judgment seat, the great white throne judgment. Okay? Very good. You needed a little exercise, got the blood flowing. Now you'll stay awake for the next hour. All right. So that's our timeline. We're looking at this in terms of these events. These 11 events from the Old Testament, 8 events from the New Testament, are sort of like um, coat pegs, okay? So you have these uh, coat hooks, and on these coat hooks we have, uh, see, we lost creation off of this uh, first one. I don't know what happened to it. Um, creation fell. But we have these these uh, coat pegs, and so on each coat peg will hang different events. So by getting these 19 events down, you can then organize the other details that come along. And I'm getting good reports from a lot of people who are teaching this to their kids, and a lot of adults are enjoying this because it gives them a great handle on the Old Testament. And the reason we pick these is because the these events are referred to later on in Scripture. And they're constantly either quoting about something in the past, talking about an event in the past, and tying an event in the past to something that is going on in a future time. And what that tells you is that these events, like the creation, the fall, the flood, uh, the Tower of Babel, the uh, uh, call of Abraham, the importance of Israel, all of these events are are the foundation on which the rest of the Bible stands. So that if those events did not take place as they are described in the Scripture, if they are not historically accurate, then the rest of the Bible is not trustworthy. But we know that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is omniscient, often referred to these events in one way or another. And so in this graphic, what I'm showing is the that there's an interconnectedness to all of these events. They are interlocked. That's why that name was chosen for this curriculum. Uh, they are interlocked so that they are interdependent. If you take one away, then the whole structure begins to fall. And these are the areas where there is attacks, intellectual attacks, over and over and over again um, by uh, people who are in positions of authority and influence, school teachers. And we have been studying about about creation. And when I was um, in the sixth grade, I remember that um, my, our teacher, uh, who was one of my favorite teachers of all my teachers, uh, but she decided one day to read us a story on how the solar system came into existence. 
and it was a pure, purely evolutionary description, talked about how uh, at that time they believed that the moon somehow escaped from the mass of the earth or something like that. So I went home, and my mother said, well, what did you, what did you do? And I told that story, and my mother said, go get your Bible and come back here. <laughs> And so uh, she said, I want you to read through Genesis 1 and then tell me how the, how the moon and how the solar system came into existence. And so I sat down and I had to read it, and that was really tough. It's a sixth grader reading the King James Version. I mean, they didn't have all these children's Bibles and everything else back then. But I'll never forget that. I'm still talking about it. And it had a tremendous impact on me and on my, my thinking. And she also told me that it was important that when, uh, when you go to school, and you need to train your kids to do this, that when they go to school, they're going to hear their teachers say things that are wrong, to say things that are maybe just the opposite of what they've been taught at home, and that they need to come home and talk to you about those things. They also need to not correct the teacher in class, whether it's sixth grade or tenth grade or whether you're in graduate school. You just go along with whatever they're saying and answer the test accordingly, write the papers accordingly, don't make an issue out of it. Uh, I had a song leader at a church I pastored about 30 years ago, and he was in his in the graduate school in paleontology at at SMU, and he was a very strong creationist. And I said, uh, I asked him one day. I said, Well, what do they think about that um, in your in your department? Have you ever had any problems? He said, They don't know. If they knew, I would. Uh, my funding would dry up. My opportunities would dry up. They would just disappear, and you wouldn't have any evidence of how you how it happened. But all of a sudden, uh, you just have a black mark against your name, and you won't go anywhere. And some of you remember Dr. Steve Austin, who spoke to us uh, at two different uh, Chafer conferences, and he also. Uh, some of you have been on. Um, raft trip with him through the Grand Canyon. In fact, I just found out that uh, 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 Dr. Petrovich went on, just a month ago, went on a Grand Canyon trip with Steve Austin, and he texted me when he got off. He said, hey, I was, I was just on the... Uh, uh, on the river with uh, Steve Austin, he said, "You you went before." I said, "Yeah, that's right. It was great." So, uh, but Steve Austin went through graduate school at I think it was University of Pennsylvania, and he wrote a lot of articles on creation under a pseudonym because if he had put his name on those articles, he would have lost all of his scholarships, funding opportunities, everything else. And that was uh, some 50 years ago. So it's worse now. So now you just get canceled. All of a sudden you go to classes and you're no longer enrolled. You just disappeared. All kinds of things are happening. So you have to understand that. And part of parents' and grandparents' job is to train and prepare your Christian kids to be able to function in a very hostile world which was not what you and I faced uh, for the main for the main thing. Okay, so we're in the second lesson. I'm trying to do most of these lessons in two classes. 
so what I'm trying to do is to break it down so that you can see as a parent or as a uh, Sunday school teacher, as a prep school teacher, how to teach this, how to take material that's written for maybe an age group that's a little higher uh, than uh, what your kids are. And so in the interlock series, which is for 16 and up, 15 and up, that age group, uh, the, the chapter headings are the spirit be- beings, talks about angels. We covered this last time. And then the second section is on the shining star, which is, I think, a fairly decent translation of Halal bin Shahar, uh, the bright sun of the dawn, bright star, son of the dawn, which is how it would be literally translated in the, in the Hebrew, not Lucifer. Lucifer was from the uh, Vulgate uh, for the translation uh, based on that, thinking identifying that that bright star with Venus. That was the Latin name uh, for Venus. So it's a good English name. So we went through the origin of the angels, that the angels were present. Uh, when creation started and then the, who Lucifer was or who uh, Satan was at the beginning, and we looked at those passages. When teaching the kids, uh, they broke it down as the spirit beings, uh, and then the problem with the shining star is that he wanted to level up and be like be the creator to take over. He was denying the creator-creature distinction, a very important principle that uh, we have to keep in mind, and it's tremendous whenever we look at many of the things that you see in headlines or you hear on the news, especially that relate to the environment, that relate to ecology, relate to meteorology, relate to uh, global warming, and this summer in Houston, we might all change our minds and become believers in global warming, but... Um, Uh, what lies at the root of all of that so-called science is a rejection of the creator-creature distinction. It underlies all of that. And so all the, everything that's built on that has to be suspect. And there's a lot of, lot, lot of, uh, lot of things that go on with that. So that's, that's the first half. Now tonight what we're going to do is look at the second half. We talked about the biblical view of origins or where everything came from and how God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. And so we'll look at these areas, definitions, uh, some key terms, uh, where this, where did this pagan worldview come from? When did it start? That's Genesis 3, 1 through 8. And then what this pagan worldview looks like today. Now, for the younger kids, we talk about Satan the serpent, Satan the deceiver, uh, and how he deceived Eve by telling her, no, 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 God was wrong, you won't really die, and uh, you will be like God. God's just jealous and doesn't want you to be like him. And um, so Adam and Eve believed Satan's lies, and then when God confronted them, they said, oops, not my fault. Have you, do you know any kids that ever said that? Not my fault. And then they pointed their brother, their sister, or somebody else. So Adam was pointing at God. He said, it's the woman you gave me. All right. So just by way of review, the focus of lesson one broke into two sessions on God's creation. And the main part was in relation to the human race. We focused on those social 
absolutes that God created within the framework, the way he created the human soul, that we were made to function best in certain ways. That's these divine institutions. And so those are very important to understand. They are under attack. We will eventually see there are six divine institutions, but they are under attack in every way possible in every sector of our culture. Personal responsibility. Ever since the time of the rise of humanistic psychology with Sigmund Freud, everything related to that type of psychology is grounded in the fact that we're just not responsible. It's all these other things. It's all in our environment. It's not us. They they have made a science out of what Adam said. It's not my fault. It's, It's the environment. It's my wife. You gave her to me, but not me, not my problem. So, um, personal responsibility has been under attack. Marriage, of course, is under attack with the whole LGBTQ plus 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 whatever, uh, that attacks marriage. Without marriage, you destroy the family. Without the family, you destroy the next generation. Without a next generation, you destroy the, what we'll see next, which is, uh, the, the nation and government. Uh, all of those things fall apart. Lesson two then focused on wrong views of creation. So we looked at uh, spirit beings and then shining stars fall and then the angelic rebellion and the deception of Adam and Eve so that there's a connection of the angelic revolt to the creation of man. Now, I raised an important question that I was I had to think it through a little bit. Once I thought it through, I thought, well, why didn't you just think about that first? And that was, if angels have mentality, and they do, they have volition, God created them with volition, uh, they have a conscience, they know the difference between right and wrong, um, they certainly have God consciousness and self-consciousness. So if, if usually that's what is defined as the image of God. So if man has that and the angels have that, but angels are not said to, ever said to be in the image of God. So what is the image of God? I think what is the image of God that is in that immaterial part of man, God designed man to represent him as the sub-ruler over the planet. We are his, we were designed to rule the planet to rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, and the uh, animals in the sea. So all of that was was part of, of uh, our intent. And so angels were never designed to rule over anything. They were to serve God, as and their name means messenger. So I think that's part of it. It's not just that we have those elements in our soul, but that our soul was designed... Uh, for that uh, leadership role. So last time we looked at the spirit beings and shining stars fall. This time we're looking at the angelic rebellion and the deception of Adam and Eve. And then the second part of the lesson understands, helps us understand why there's so many wrong views and where we came from. Okay, so we started with creation and fall. And remember I talked about these these coat hooks? So the first coat hook is what? 
for, on creation. It's a creator-creature distinction. The second coat hook is the divine institutions. That coat goes on that hook. And then the third coat that goes on that hook has to do with the spirit beings, what we're studying now, and the angelic revolt. Okay? So I've already reviewed the divine institutions, and just to remind you again, because we'll come back to that this tonight, the creator-creature distinction. God is the creator. He's in that upper level, the first level. He's the infinite personal creator God. And the second level, everybody is finite. God is infinite. He has no boundaries. Man is finite. He has great limitations. And so God created everything out of nothing. He's a God of order and purpose, and this sets him apart from who we are. We can never, ever level up to the creator level, but that was what the temptation was. And we talked about the divine institutions already. So by way of review, God looked over everything at the end of the creation week, took pleasure in it, and now he expected Adam to exercise that same creativity and authority over the creation and to take pleasure in it. Second, as an image bearer, mankind was to imitate what the creator had done and to represent the creator. And third, a man in this perfect, unflawed image of God was sinless, but that was only at the beginning. Only the first two chapters and last two chapters of the Bible have no, have no sin. Fourth, God, as part of responsible choice, the first divine institution, gave man this volition, to the ability to make choices. Uh, we may make choices and not be able to carry them out. God may override our choices sometimes. With, and sometimes God allows us to make bad choices. That's from his permissive will. But he has given us the ability to make choices, and each one of us is accountable to God for our choices. So there's a lot involved in that first divine institution, but it's important to understand because our lives are the result of the choices we make. And if we make bad choices, and it's amazing how kids and adolescents can make bad choices that will limit the rest of their lives. And they'll, they'll, they'll never have certain options because of certain bad choices they make early on. Sometimes God overrides that with his grace. Okay, so when we talk about this, we talk about a worldview, and a worldview is a way people look at the world. You have all kinds of things that happen around you, and the way you filter them and try to make sense of them and understand them is based on, that's your worldview. And it's built into you as you grow and develop as a child. And you learn all of the different things related to that. So the foundation of a worldview is how we think of ultimate reality. Where did we all come from? People either think that they came from God who created everything out of nothing and then from some things that he created, after, for example, after God created the, the planet Earth, from the dust, he, isn't that interesting? He created the planet. But when he created the planet, he created the planet with certain chemical uh, uh, chem chemical components in the dirt so that when he was ready to create man, he had already created out of nothing those chemical components he would use 
to make the bodies for Adam, the body for Adam, and then it's out of Adam's body he made the woman's body. So it's God has a plan, careful procedure all the way through. And the other thing we see is that how we understand this God, that he is a personal God, he is a sovereign God. He is capable of personal relationships, and he rules over his creation. And then third, that he's the ultimate authority. Those three elements are very important to understand the contrast we're going to see with Satan's deception. So we saw that the spirit beings were created in Job, were present in Job 38, 4 through 7, uh, when God created or laid the foundations of the earth. All the morning stars sang together. They're united. The fall has not, of Satan has not taken uh, place at that time. And then we see that time really begins from man's perspective. Now there's all kinds of ways in which we could measure time. But the biblical time is from the perspective of a person who is living on planet Earth. And so there's lots of other theories. Creationists have lots of theories, lots of views, but we don't need to get off into all of that. Uh, even in eternity, there's a progression of events, but it's not clocked like the Bible is. So we see that... Uh, before the laying of the foundation, God had created the spirit beings. There were different kinds. There were seraphs who had six wings. How do you remember that? Seraph starts with an S. Six starts with an S. Seraphs have six wings. A cherub has four faces. And they're of what later become animals, because these animals weren't created at the time the angels were. So God creates these angels, and later he creates eagles and uh, lions and oxen and humans. So it's, it's that's just fascinating thing to think about, but we don't have time anymore. Uh, living creatures uh, mentioned in Revelation chapter 4, full of eyes, one's like a lion, one's like a calf, one's like a man, the fourth like an eagle, and each of them have six wings. So some people think they're like seraphs. And then we only know of the names of two of them, Michael and Gabriel, but there are millions and millions and millions of angels. We saw the, And we saw that in Revelation 5.11, myriads and myriads and thousands of angels, uh, Fifth, the term means messenger, so they're God's ser- servants. We talked about the shining star, who's the greatest, most brilliant, most intelligent, most capable musician, fully talented in every area, and that's called the shining star or Lucifer. And he wants to level up from being a creature to being the creator. Okay, he's also described in as the anointed cherub in Ezekiel 28:14. And in both of those passages God is addressing the power behind the human king. So the power behind the king of Tyre, the power behind the king of Babylon was this angel. So we saw him his original name was shining star or morning star and now he's known as Satan which means accuser or devil, which is from the Greek, which also means accuser or adversary, and he's the ruler of this planet now, and he is the prince of demons. So in the timeline, we have spirit beings created, then there's the creation event of the planet Earth, um, then shining star falls, 
and then Adam and Eve are tempted. Now we come to our topic tonight, the pagan view of origins. First of all, everyone has some way of understanding reality. Every single person, whether you are living in uh, Stone Age, uh, primitive tribe in uh, Irinjaya, or whether you are living in an upper uh, um, upper crust, uh, intelligent, affluent New York City. Wherever you are, whether you're living in Africa, whether you're living in Russia, whether you're living in China, you have some way of looking at the world. And in those different countries, they have different cultures. And most of them have different religions than Christianity, or there used to be a lot of different religions other than Christianity. And so that was how they understood reality, was through those those religions. And many of them had rejected the truth at one time. So everyone has some way of understanding reality. It's learned as you grow up. You learn it from your family at first. You learn it from your uh, friends at school. You learn it from your teachers. You learn it from um, everything around you uh, shapes your way of looking at the world. And so you're either going to look at the world on the basis of finite human beings or you're going to look at or interpret the world on the basis of the Word of God. Those are the only two options. Now, within the view that you're looking at it from the way that uh, a lot of humans look at it, there may be 20,000, 50,000 options, but they all exclude the God of the Bible. They all start from a different point. And uh, Christianity starts with the Bible. So one of the key elements in developing a, your worldview is to understand how it began. Where did it all come from? How did the universe get here? How did the solar system get here? How did planet Earth get here? Is the, the planet, does it have a lifespan? Is it really going to just burn up at some time in the future? What about all the people that live here? Uh, is it really billions and billions of years old, or is it much younger? How do we understand these things? Third, basically, as I said a minute ago, you have one of two ways. Either something, someone, created everything out of nothing, or... Everything is created out of something that has always existed. Those are the only two options, basically. It's either created out of nothing by an all-knowing, all-powerful God, or it is created out of something that has just always existed. But how did it come into existence? If, if you have matter and energy and this just always existed, where did it come from? How did it, how did it have it, its origin? You know, if, if the laws that are in effect today were in effect then, then we have, uh, we have physic, laws of physics that say that there's a finite amount of energy, but the second law says that that energy is running down. And since time is infinite, it would have already run down long before this. Now, that may be a heavy thought for you, 
But we have those two laws. They're called the laws of thermodynamics. And the first is you start with a finite amount of mass and energy, and the second is it's running down. Well, if those two things are true, then we would have run everything down a long time ago. So this is, this is part of a major weakness in evolutionary theory. So as Christians, we recognize that only the all-powerful, all-knowing God ultimately made everything out of nothing. And if there's a God who made everything out of nothing, then that means that he had a plan and a purpose. And what that ultimately means is that God has a plan and a purpose for everybody's life. We're not just accidents. If, on the other hand, any of the other views are true, that things just sort of happened uh, as a result of time plus chance, then we're just an accident, every one of us. It's just an accident because of an accidental discharge in a mass of, of goo somewhere, and somehow it shifted from uh, inorganic to organic material. And how did that happen? Well, we'll see that nobody knows and nobody's been able to uh, reproduce that. So it's those are the only two op- options. There may be a lot of details that vary, but those are really the only two options. And we'll talk more about that as we go forward. Fourth, this way of thinking about everything is called a worldview. A worldview. And all worldviews have some explanation of how the universe and the world came into existence. It doesn't matter whether you are some um, primitive who is worshiping uh, spirits, uh, spirits of ancestors, or whether you are uh, a sophisticated Scientologist worshiping whatever they worship. Um, everybody has an idea of how the universe and world came into existence. Second, uh, they have an idea of what existed before the present universe, what that looked like. Third, they have um, we have a view of how we learn things, how we come to know things, and that's part of a worldview. We also have uh, an understanding of the beginnings of humanity. Where did we come from? It was interesting that on my vacation this last week, we went whitewater rafting down the Nantahala River in uh, North Carolina. And we had about a 70-year-old hippie who is our guide, and he's been doing that for 43 years, he said. So I told him, I said, well, there's a chance that I saw him 43 years ago, which was the last time I did this uh, there. And so... um, but he told us uh, a story about how the earth came to be based on Cherokee legend. And it was, I'm not going to go into it, but it was interesting because, of course, uh, uh, Pam and I were there, and then uh, one of the board members for Dean Bible Ministries, Craig Williams, was with us. And we were all kind of, you know, glancing over at each other while the, this guy was telling the story. But it just shows to be one of these many, many stories that you can fit in a degraded memory of the flood because the whole earth is covered with water and there's a bird and the bird's trying to find dry land. And so he, uh, a fish de- or the bird goes down deep in the water, brings up some dirt, and when he drops the dirt on top of the water, it spreads out into the continents. 
And so that's, that's some sort of degraded memory of what happens after the flood. And you have legends like that, uh, that, uh, indicate a, that the whole earth at one time is covered, covered with water and that would go back to the, to the flood. So that's how they explain the beginnings of humanity and the purpose of humanity. The purpose of humanity is going to be directly related to how you understand the beginnings of humanity. And that's going to be directly related to how the universe came into existence and whether or not there's a God. If you don't have a God, I remember this saying when I was in college and I thought, you know, that, that, that really captures it. If there is no God, then nothing matters. But if there is a God, then everything matters. And that's just real simple. If there's no God, then nothing in life matters. You don't have any basis for right or wrong or doing anything or trying to do better yourself or improve anything. And where do we get our ideas of what is right and what is wrong? When the creature decides to be the creator, he makes it up as he goes along every day. And what's right today is wrong tomorrow. And what's right the next day is wrong today. And it gets very confusing and it just leads to chaos. Okay. So to summarize the pagan worldview. So we've looked at the biblical worldview. Now the pagan worldview it starts with something that we'll define these terms in a minute. It starts with something called the continuity of being. Continuity of being. And we have to ask this word, what does it mean uh, when you use the word being? Well, that's the stuff that makes it something, okay? To make, if, if it doesn't exist, it's non-being. If it exists, it, it is being. It either bees or it doesn't bees. You got that? And so if it bees, it's got something that makes it existing. So that's what it is. And in the pagan worldview, there's a sliding scale from, from the so-called gods all the way down to the rocks, which is what I've got pictured here. You've got the gods at one end, and then they, they have all the stuff of existence. And then a little bit less would be the angels. A little bit less than that would be the humans. A little bit less than that would be the animals. And then the plants just have some, but not very much. And then the rocks have, have some, but not a whole lot. So that's this scale. And in paganism, you can slide up and down this scale. Going back and forth, you have uh, examples uh, in reincarnation. So let's say you're, you're a, a mosquito and you are land on a nice piece of warm flesh and you're sucking some blood and somebody slaps you and you're dead, well, three days later you can come back as a, a little more advanced form of, of an insect. Maybe you'll become a bee. And then the bee dies after a while and then it comes back as a lizard. And so you're, you're moving up the chain. You're sliding up and down the scale. <coughs> And that's basically what reincarnation is. And um, so that's very much a part of several different uh, different re- religious systems. So there's uh, the idea of, of uh, reincarnation. And then you also see this in various uh, stories, myths, and legends. You have uh, Greek 
uh, Greek myths of stories about the gods and how how they came into existence, and you have um, you have the Norse legends, and all these are, of course, very important. If you look at Marvel comics and all the Marvel comic movies that have come out, they promote all of these kinds of things. But you basically are seeing these god, quote gods unquote sliding across this scale of of being from human to uh, to divine. So that's what continuity of being uh, basic basically means, is that um, there's no absolute distinction between gods, man, or animals. Uh, they're all made of the same stuff. Some just have more of it uh, than others do. The second thing that is present, uh, or term that we need to define, is ultimate reality. Ultimate reality, what are we talking about here? That when we get past all the physical things that we can see, we can see the stars and we can see the planets and we can see the sun and the moon and planet Earth and we can see people, but when we get beyond all all of that, what is it that lasts forever? What's that ultimate, ultimate reality? In Christianity, it is God who is a person, and he is personal, but he is also infinite. What happened with the Greeks is they have gods that are personal, but they're not infinite. What happens in some of the New Age religions, if you've got, you've got uh, deities that are infinite, but they're not personal. They're transcendent, but they're not imminent, in other words. And you've got to bring that down to, to help kids understand that. And so ultimate reality in all of the pagan systems ultimately boils down to impersonal fate, not personal. Fate is impersonal and random chance. Random chance. You just uh, you just uh, take the dice and you roll the dice and however they come up, that's what you have. And it can be one thing one day. There's no rhyme or reason to it. There's no purpose. And then the ultimate authority is the self, that each person becomes their own ultimate authority. Now, what we've seen in our culture is scary because when you trace the ideas, and always remember, ideas are important. The most important thing you can study is ideas. That's what the Bible is. It's not just ideas. It's ideas that, that are the ideas of God. But when you have, um, you have people today have a set of ideas, and all ideas have consequences. And the ideas that came percolating out of Western civilization about a hundred and 30 to 160 years ago are ideas that are we're seeing now that are self-destructive. And part one of the ideas that came out of that is that the only thing that really matters is you. But I disagree with that because the only thing that really matters is me. <laughs> and we all say that. And we all act like that. And that's embedded in our culture. That, that you need to find out what makes you happy. If you buy into that as a Christian, you'll never make it in the Christian life because the Christian life is not about being happy. The Christian life is about serving God. 
A lot of people will go to get married and they uh, are infatuated with each other. A lot of people have great marriages and they started off because they were infatuated with each other, but they grew in maturity and in the Word of God and developed a deep and profound relationship w- with one another. But you have a lot of people who don't do that and they have conflicts because you have a man and a woman who were thinking this when they were standing before the pastor that I'm so glad I married you because you make me feel so wonderful. You make me feel like I'm the most important person in the world, and I am the most important person in the world. And now I'm going to give you the chance to make me feel like I'm the most important person in the world for the next 50, 60, or 70 years. And you're here to make me feel important. And they're both saying that. So right then you lay down the the groundwork for some real problems. We have a whole culture like that, that they are taught that you need to do what makes you happy. And the Bible doesn't say that. People get married, they say, I'm going to get married because I want to be happy. That's not Christian. That's not biblical. The Bible says you want to get married, that man and woman brought together in a union in marriage was for the purpose of bringing glory to God by their relationship and the way they are going to uh, live together and the way that they are going to serve God. And if they do that, they will have a happiness, but it's not how they would have defined happiness when they were 18 years old. They are going to define as it's going to be the result of a rich, deep, profound relationship with God, and they are going to realize the purpose for which God created mankind. So, but, but in, in all of the pagan systems, it's all about the individual. Individual pleasure, individual, uh, wealth, uh, having all the things that, uh, all the toys that I can possibly have. Now, in the past, I've taught on this whole chain of being idea, and this was one way I diagrammed it, so there are different ways, but you see that in the pyramid here, that's all, everything in the pyramid partakes of this substance that we call existence. God's inside that triangle. He has more of it than the rocks and the dirt, but they have some of it. But everything here shares in that same substance, and so there's no what distinction. There's no what distinction? There's no creator-creature distinction because the creator is just as much a part of existence as everything else. Here's another ancient way that this was uh, done. So this idea goes back before Aristotle, before Plato, before Socrates, goes back into antiquity. And so in all of these mythological systems, you have at the very beginning, you have this chaos. Something always existed, and it was chaos. And out of this come these finite, limited gods. And so this whole chain of existence comes out by chance from this chaos so that there's no difference between the gods and goddesses and the universe in which they live. And uh, it's full of, full of chaos. So they look at this whole scale of being that man can just slide one way or the other way. And he can make himself more like God or less like God. Now, the next uh, 
reality is um, that ultimate reality is impersonal faith, fate or chance. It's like throwing the dice. You just don't know what's going to happen. Now, sometimes life looks like that, doesn't it? It looks really random. But we know that God is in control, and so he is governing these events that appear to be to us to be out of control but are not. Uh, in, in the pagan view, ultimate reality means there's no personal God or gods and that um, uh, there's never-ending time and everything is purely random chance. And in, when there are many gods, which is called poly, a word that means many, Theism, word for God, polytheists have many gods. These gods are just like like supermen. Uh, they're not really a god like the god of the Bible at all. They just and they fight amongst themselves a lot, and they have all the little petty sins that human beings have. And so there's something higher than them, which is called fate. Fate is impersonal. And so that's what they ultimately rely on. And before we're done, I'll give you an example of the language that's used to describe that. So those who don't believe in a deity believe in chance. Everything is just random chance. There's no purpose. There's no meaning in life. And anything can happen given enough time. Chance is impersonal. And so we have, uh, that leads to the last point, that if everything is impersonal, everything is random, then I'm the one who's ultimately in charge. There's no God that's in charge. I am the ultimate reality. I determine everything. I determine right from wrong. And today it will be one way, and the next day it will be something else. We say, I am the ruler of my future. I will determine everything. So it's everything's about me, and I have to be true to who I am. But that's not what the Bible says. So what we have are these things, that there's no personal God, plus a world run by fate and chance, that I'm not answerable to anybody. That's antinomianism. That's the big word. And what that means is lawlessness, and that's what we have today. Everybody just does what they want to do. We have a president and his family who appear to be just doing whatever they want to do. And it's not just this president. There's a whole series of presidents from different parties who have exhibited a lot of these characteristics. But this is what we have going on around us. And when everybody is uh, is saying, I am the boss, what do you end up with? Power struggles, a power struggle. The human race will deteriorate into nothing more than big gangs or cartels fighting each other. And there's no, because there's no uh, universal law to bring uh, meaning out of the chaos. So we asked the question at the beginning, uh, where does a pagan worldview come from and how did it begin? The Bible says that when God created everything in the garden, he created it perfect. Now, this wasn't a moral perfection, but there was nothing that was not as God intended it. And there is no sin in the human race because God had created them morally perfect. And so that was normal. Ever since the beginning of Genesis 3, 
We've been living in an abnormal world. Death is abnormal. I point this out every time I have a funeral, that when you lose a loved one, a close friend, and they die, you feel a, your gut is just torn. And that's because God put that grief there to make you realize that it's not normal. I first learned this when I was about 12 years old and my dog died. I hardly remembered a time when I didn't have that dog. That dog went to the vet, vet, uh, veterinarian hospital down the street, and he had some condition, and uh, he didn't survive the surgery. I mean, I was broken up. It was, and trying to get your mental fingers around death that someone you love is there one moment and not the next, and you'll never see him again, is phenomenal. And it hurts. And what do you say? This isn't right. You're right. It isn't right. It's not normal. It's not normal because of sin. And so today we try to answer that, why it's not normal, with all kinds of other garbage. So what happened in the garden, this is the development of the original um, uh, pagan view. You have the serpent. So you have a real serpent who is taken under control by Satan, we learn later, And he is said to be the shrewdest, the smartest, the craftiest of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Now, what's going on here? We'll come back to this in a minute. Satan uses the generic term for God, not the personal name of God. See, Satan's crafty. He's getting the woman to think about God in an impersonal way by the way he uses language. In um, Genesis 3-2, the woman replies and says, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. Uh, It's only from the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. Did God say that? No. So he's making it up. Uh, You will die. So Satan's being uh, crafty. What's he doing? He says he's promising Eve in all of this that she could be like God, that she could go up the scale. She could level up from creature to creator. So the pagan worldview suggests man can move up the scale to be godlike. And we have a lot of people who teach this in various philosophical and religious systems. Verse 5 says, God knows that, or Satan says, God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you uh, eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So Eve's thinking she can become like Yahweh. Genesis 3, 6, what happens here? Now, it's, I've, I've put the uh, verse in here, which is from the New King James ver- Version, which I didn't label. But uh, I want to read it as it was, uh, as it was translated in the New, New Living Translation. The New King James says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for fruit, that's a pretty accurate literal translation from the Hebrew. But I think... 
The New Living Translation captures the sense of what's happening here. She looks at the fruit. She sees that it's good. And she becomes convinced. That's how they translate it. The the woman was convinced. What was the authority? Herself. She's shifting the authority to herself. It looked good to her. Now, what could she, what were her options? What could she have done? She said, well, now wait a minute, Snakey. That's not what Yahweh told us. And he's been pretty good to us, and he's provided us a pretty good life. So I think that instead of listening to you, I'm going to go ask him what he says about it. I mean, that was a real option. It appears she didn't even think about it. See, that's what happens a lot of time. Once we make this mental shift that's almost imperceptible, that we're the authority and not God, then we're already sliding into sin. So she saw that the tree, she's relying on her own experience. How much experience does she have? Not much, three or four days. I don't think she was there a long time. Some people want to say, oh, we got to load up all this time. I don't think there's any reason in the text where you've got to add anything. You know, it could be 10 years. It could be 15, 20 years. But it hadn't been long. So her knowledge is pretty limited. But on the basis of her limited knowledge, she's going to decide that she knows more than omniscient God. So she takes the fruit and she eats it, and then she takes her finger to her husband, come here, and gives it to him, and he eats. And ever since then, we've had problems. So what's happening here? They're following the example of the shining star of Satan. He wanted to promote himself to be God. We saw that in the five I wills in Isaiah chapter 14. Remember this. How do you know the fall of Satan? Where are the two passages? Isaiah 14, double it, Ezekiel 28. That's how you remember that. So he wanted to promote himself and to be like God. And arrogance was found in him. What happens? He entices and deceives mankind into thinking they can be God too. What he didn't realize was now there are three people who think they can be God. That's called competition. Now we have a planet where we have about six and a half billion, I think that's close to the latest, people who think they can be God. That's a lot of competition. So the second thing we should observe is that by using Elohim instead of Yahweh, Satan is subtly introducing the idea of impersonal fate and chance. He's not a person named Yahweh. He is just another Elohim. Now, you have to capture what's going on here in the Greek. We've often been taught that Elohim always means God, capital G, But we saw in our study of the angelic revolt three or four years ago that there are a lot of passages where the angels in the angelic council are referred to as Elohim, as gods. Okay, so what Satan is doing is, and what we see there is Yahweh 
is the authority as the creator God over the council of the angels, also referred to in many places as the Elohim. So what Satan has just done by calling him Elohim is he brings him down to the level of the angels. He's just another creature. And you can be like, you're a creature too, and you can be like him as well. So here are some of the verses that use that. Um, Psalm 77, 13, O God, your ways are holy. Is there any Elohim as mighty as you? Now, don't just think that he's talking about the false gods. He's talking about the angels. Psalm 82, 6, I say, you are gods, talking to the angels. You are all children of the Most High. The Elohim, children, they're called the sons of God because God directly created each one of them. Psalm 86, 8 and 10, no, and the word pagan is not in the original. It just says, no Elohim is like you, O Lord. None can do what you do. That indicates that there are other Elohim, but they're not Yahweh who created them. For you are great and perform wonderful, wonderful deeds. You alone are Elohim. Psalm 96.5, the Elohim of other nations are mere idols, but Yahweh made the heavens. Notice it goes right to that creator-creature distinction. So Satan is subtly moving Yahweh down the scale of being to be just an Elohim like all the other created angels. Satan wanted to be the Elohim of the Elohim, and now he's convincing Eve that she can be an Elohim also. She can move herself up the scale of being. So his tactic is to diminish the sovereign nature of Yahweh and that he is personal and just reduce him to something not so special. By not using his name, Satan is removing this personal relational aspect of God. And um, it's very different to say, Yahweh told me to do this, and then Joe Smith around the corner told me to do this. So name the name of God is very important. Third thing we're seeing here is that Satan tricked Eve into thinking she had ultimate authority over her own life, not God. The idea of self being the ultimate authority. So he appeals to her in the question, did God really say? So she has to decide this question. He set her up. It's sort of like the person who comes up and says, have you quit beating your wife? Gotta think about it a minute. If you say yes, you're in trouble. If you say no, you're in trouble. So Satan sets her up. And then he completely rejects God. He says, God, you won't die. See, God lied to you. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So he puts Eve in the decision to judge God, and she goes right for it. Remember, we talked about divine institution number one, personal or responsible choice. God gave them real choice, and she made a real choice and rejected God, and because she exercised it wrongly or irresponsibly, it plunges the human race into everything we see that's sin and horrors. Everything you can think of is the result of eating a piece of fruit. Who knew that fruit was so bad for you? All right, so where did did the pagan worldview come from? Number one, Satan's the source of the pagan worldview. 
Number two, Satan deceived Eve into thinking she too could change who she was as a creature. Now he's trying to convince people you can change from being a man to a woman or from a woman to be a man. Third, Satan planted the idea, but Eve and Adam freely chose, and they used their ability to choose to choose wrongly. So when the Roman, the woman saw that the tree was good for food, she made that decision. Now, I ran across this in my Bible, and I thought I would share it with you. This is from something. I know some of you have listened to Charlie Close Framework series, but I don't know that any of you have ever read the first Framework pamphlet, which he allegedly is rewriting. But I have a copy of it, and it's about apologetics. But in there he says, Adam and Eve, quoting Cornelius Van Til, an apologetic philosopher, theologian, Adam and Eve originally sinned by trying to start from a non-existent neutral position in which God's word did not have inherent self-attesting authority. See, when God speaks everywhere else in the Bible, when God speaks, you know it's God. You don't have to say, well, wait a minute, prove you're God. Nobody says that. When God speaks to anybody, they know it's God. His voice has self-attesting authority. But they put themselves a step back and they go, I have to judge God. That's what Van Til is saying. Faced with one proposition from God, in the day you eat of it, you will die, and an opposite proposition from Satan, you shall not surely die, Adam and Eve chose an independent testing method to see whether God's word was true. They put themselves in authority over God. Adam saw Satan's point. You're right, Satan. I must first decide whether such a God as often speaks to us. Number one, knows what the good is for us. Number two, controls history so that he can determine what will happen if we disobey him. And three, has the right to demand obedience from us. Now, that, that's a whole class right there explaining what that meant. But that's very important. He says, after I decide these issues, if the answer is yes, then I'll obey him. It's put, he's, he's already sliding into the cesspool of carnality. Okay? So choice one is to ask God, go back to God and say, the snake says this, what do you say? Choice two is we're going we're gonna to determine what's right or wrong for us. So when you compare the biblical worldview with the pagan worldview, the biblical world says there's a creator-creature distinction. God, hard stop. Mankind, hard stop. Nature, creation, the animals. Number two, God is a personal sovereign God. And number three, the ultimate authority is God. But every pagan worldview is going to say that you can move up and down that scale because you're the boss. Number two, it's all based on impersonal fate and chance. There's no real meaning in life. It's all random. And three, therefore, I'm the ultimate authority. So we need to look at what that pagan worldview looks like today, and I'm out of time, so we'll start looking at those last two boxes next time. But we will go ahead and begin into the third lesson. So be sure to download the notes, read the third lesson, and... Um, and we'll be better, ready to go forward. So we're just going to finish up with this last part of Chapter 2, or the Lesson 2, and then we'll go into uh, Lesson 3.
Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things, recognizing that we need to learn to think in these categories and with these ideas as we listen to people talk about their beliefs, when we listen to people talk about uh, the issues of the day related to uh, global warming or related to economics or related to uh, law, uh, related to justice, are we going to start with what you say in the Bible? Are we going to go there first, or are we going to go to uh, somebody else to find out what the answers are? And, and that's the real issue. Are you the one in authority over our lives, or are we going to try to figure it all out on our own from our limited, our limited perspective? So it starts there. So challenge us with an understanding of that and its implications in our own lives. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.